Let us pray to the Lord, Lord have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee, without the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, that unto thee we ascribe glory together with thine unoriginate Father, and thine all holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. <clears throat> I was going to tell you a little a funny story. I'm in a little silly mood today for some reason. Believe it or not, look at a picture of me. I, you, don't, you probably wouldn't see a, a silly guy. But um, I'll tell you this story. When you came in, it reminded me, Aki, is that your name? With your beard and everything. You know, you're in good company here as well. But before, before I was a priest or anything, I had the beard and not quite as long hair, but my hair actually was crazier because it wasn't long enough to pull it back. And so it just went everywhere. Do you remember that? Yeah. And actually when I became a priest, and I was serving, and my hair was getting longer, and I would bow, it would flop over, and um, it was wilder than it is now. But uh, there was one day when I was a young man, walking through the streets of Seattle. I commuted on foot and on bike from my apartment to work twice a day, because I worked a split shift. And... Uh, I was walking down the street and I saw a homeless man. And it said, home, like, homeless, disabled vet, bad back, anything helps. So I was holding a little sign. Come on in. Can, can she sit maybe right here by you guys? Oh, yeah, Jeff's over there. There you go, no problem. Um, and so I thought, I'm just going to chat with this guy a little bit. and Maybe I'll give him any, anything I have. I pulled into my pocket and there was a, I had a nickel. And I th- anything helps, I thought, I'll just I'll give him a nickel then, I, I guess. And uh, I said, hey, brother, how you doing? And he goes, well, you know, we have good days and bad days. Today's a little better than the other ones. And before I had the chance to give him my nickel, he handed me 50 cents. <laughs> He goes, here's 50 cents, brother. It's all I have. And I said, no, don't worry about it. I'm okay. <laughs> Here, this is, this is all I have on me right now. And I gave him my nickel. But um, anyway, I just came from a clergy seminar. And if you've seen pictures of our clergy, we all look like a ragamuffin group. And I was telling someone the other day, if, if it weren't for our cassocks and crosses, we'd probably look like street guys. Um, and actually, we could talk about that, why the beard and long hair and stuff. It usually, uh, in some, it, it ties back to probably originally the desert tradition of the church. And I can give a longer teaching about it sometime. But in about the fourth century, when Christianity was no longer an illicit religion, 
it became easier to be a Christian. And you know, with ease comes laxity, comes complacency. And that's one of our problems these days. You know, we treat our faith like a luxury. Rather than, if there is one thing that is needful, I was talking about necessity today, the one needful thing is our Christian faith, you know, our relationship with Christ. And we should be willing to die for it. And the early Christians did suffer and die for it. I mean, their life was on the line. To say that you were a Christian was to sign on the dotted line. But to be a Christian is to give up your life for Christ's sake. To live for Christ and to die for Christ. One of the contemporary saints of the church, Saint Sophroni, said something striking. He said, we really can't live as Christians. We can only die as Christians. <laughs> Meaning that our life is a constant giving of ourselves for Christ's sake, a death to ourself so that we can become alive in him. This is a paradox for us. Uh, orthodoxy is paradoxy, I heard someone say once, and it's true. So, um, anyway, around that time, when, have you heard of Constantine the Great, came on the scene and had an had a experience, an encounter with Christ through a vision of the cross, and he legalized Christianity. He didn't Christianize the empire. That came later. But he legalized Christianity. And around that time, Christians started to become more like comfortable. Not immediately, but, it's, but with that kind of complacency, you know, the Christianity has, has always been a suffering church. So there were people who were worried about the direction that it was going. And some withdrew to the desert. One of the first ones was St. Anthony the Great. You ever heard of St. Anthony? I think he's your patron saint, you know, already. But uh, he heard, go and sell all of your belongings, give it to the poor and follow me. He heard that in the gospel reading and he applied it directly to himself. He divested himself of all of his assets, made sure his sister was taken care of and withdrew to the desert to worship, to pray. And uh, little by little, people started to gather around him who also wanted that type of life. And he's known as the father of monasticism. And when people, there are others who are considered also fathers of the monastic life, but he is kind of the quintessential one. And when they went out into the desert, I heard one, priest and professors say, well, they definitely didn't have scissors out there, you know? And so, and they didn't care about their appearance too much. And it's natural when you, you know, when you become a man and you start growing facial hair to let it grow out and they didn't have to pass a job interview or anything like that. And so it became natural for the ascetics, especially to grow their beard out and their hair. And that's something that has become kind of that simplicity and uh, that uh, it's almost kind of like it's kind of like the uh, oh, what's the word I'm thinking of the priest's uniform you know 
because if you get us all together, we all look kind of the same. You know, it's like one might have a little more white or gray, and another one might have glasses or not. But with the, it makes us a little more anonymous in a way, you know, among the crowd, especially if you go to a place like Greece or Russia. It's kind of like a priest is a priest. I think in America, only in America can you really have a celebrity Orthodox priest or something like that. Because there, I mean, there are those who are more well-known, but there's a priest on every, around every corner, you know, many churches and things. Um, and so this, this ideal of simplicity and kind of an anonymity in a way, and the ascetical heritage that we have from those who are strugglers in the desert, that word ascetical, do you guys know that word? Have you heard of it? I use it quite a bit. Ascetical comes from the Greek, the Greek word, um, uh, what is it? Askesis. Um, which just means like, St. Paul uses the word as like, a, like, like someone who's in the Olympics, who's struggling, who's training, who's disciplining himself or herself, you know, to, to achieve a certain goal. And spiritual discipline is something that's important. You know, we, um, so that's something that I think that the, the clergy have inherited. Although we have to be careful, you know, in our day, in our day and age of, of vanity, the prevalence of vanity, you know, like you can, you could grow the longest beard ever and be proud of yourself. You know, not like St. Anthony in the desert who was battling the demons. You know what I mean? You'd have a beard down to your waist and you're impressed with yourself. So we have to be careful, you know what I mean? But this isn't, this isn't, it's not a kind of an orthodox fashion show or something like that. That's not what this is about. We want to be the real deal. So... Anyway, that's just a, a, little, a little story and then a little reflection provoked the when I saw you. and um, I'm in a light mood today, so I wanted to share kind of a funny story. I was working with young adults and uh, youth for many years, and I heard some kids saying about me. You know, I could hear them saying, well, what's up with that homeless guy over there who's working here? And I... What's up with that homeless guy who's working here? You know, because I had my beard and my crazy hair. And I went around and I was like, I always like to play with kids. So I, did you just call me a homeless guy? And they were like, they were like pinned to the wall. Like, oh, he heard me. And then I said, let me tell you a story. And then I told them a story about that encounter I had with the guy on the streets of Seattle. And they were just kind of like, <laughs> left with their eyes wide open and walked away. I walked away and I let it go. It was funny. You know, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So, we're talking about the sacraments of the church. We've gone into detail about the meaning of the word sacrament. Sacrament has a, a Latin origin. So in the Orthodox Church, we like to refer to them as something else. What do we generally refer to the sacraments as in the Orthodox Church? 
Mysteries, yeah. Mysteries, we refer to them as the holy mysteries. Why do we call them the holy mysteries? And this isn't necessarily uh, a test question answer I'm looking for, but why do you think that we would equate something like baptism or holy communion or confession with the word mystery? Jamie, what do you think? <laughs> They're mystical, and we don't know how they work. That's a good answer. In a material way. Yeah, in a material way. Yeah. What do you think? There's a kind of participation that you can have where it's an action that you take that sometimes is repeatable, sometimes is not. That connects you with the highest thing which there is, which is God. Mm-hmm. And the way in which that functions, where a very simple action, or what seems to be simple on the service, can connect you with something Right. High. Weed, water, wine, and oil. People doing stuff with it. Right. So yeah. It's mysterious because things that are really true connect back to God or all the way up the hierarchy, but then how that actually works from the highest place to connect mm-hmm. to where you are now, it's... It's the reason why I like the command doorbells brighter on the outside, darker in the middle, because what you can observe, which is easily understood on the surface, isn't necessarily what mm-hmm. the depth of it actually is. And the deeper you go, the less that you actually understand. And it's kind of a... That's part of the paradox that, yeah. that I was talking about. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, that's right. So you're both... That's That's right. It's an, we call it a mystery because it's, an, it's some kind of, it's an intersection between the creator and the, un, and the created. An, inter, an interaction between how can the one who is not made by hands outside of time, outside of time and space, somehow come into contact with you or I. And it begins first by, through the mystery of the Incarnation, God became man in a what would be called a, maybe a rational scandal and not a theological one. Every heresy is an attempt at rationalizing the incomprehensibility or the mystery of the Incarnation of God. And then all of the sacraments of the church are kind of a continuation of the incarnation that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and physically touched people. People actually encountered God in the person of Jesus Christ. They didn't just encounter a person who was a link to God. You understand? God became man. God became what he wasn't so that we could become what we were created to be. And so in all of the sacraments of the church, this thing that, like you said, is beyond our ability to understand, but is not beyond our ability to experience, takes place. And so, like this hit me last year when we were doing the the water blessing, or the year before, I don't remember, but... And I won't get into the whole meaning of water, the theophany water blessing and 
stuff like that. But we, we call down the Holy Spirit to bless the water, to sanctify the waters. And the people partake of the water and we sprinkle it all over the place. And it's one of the priest's favorite times because he gets to soak people, you know. There is no holy super soaker, though. He just uses his brush, which is even more fun than a water gun. But uh, people were always were very overly intellectual and overly emotional in the Orthodox Church. I mean, no, not in the Orthodox Church, in the Western world, forgive me, in the Western world. And uh, we're always wondering, what am I supposed to be experiencing here? What am I supposed to be thinking about here? What am, what's supposed to, what am I supposed to be feeling when the priest is sprinkling me with the holy water? You know, is there some spiritual uh, exaltation that I'm supposed to be going through? And the, the realization I came to is what you're supposed to be experiencing is water hitting your face. Water getting on you and blessing the building. You know what I mean? God's creation that's been reclaimed and sanctified. Hitting you, coming in contact with you. Because in a way to come into contact with, with that which is of God and has not fallen to corruption is to come into contact with the Creator. You know what I mean? To come into contact with the creation is to encounter the Creator in some way. We don't confuse the Creator with the creation, but we constantly acknowledge that there is nothing that I could encounter that hasn't been made by Him. That doesn't have, as I've heard some people over the years say, doesn't have the imprint of God in it. There's nothing in this physical world that could be absent altogether of the touch of God. And in the church, when we do certain things, like we bless water and bread and wine and oil and anoint with it and things like that, we're, we're just reclaiming that, voicing that fundamental reality that if God is the creator of this world that we live in and we have no life apart from him, then this whole world was given to us as a gift, a, a means of encountering and being with him. You know, not just some kind of prison that is subject to corruption and just keeps getting worse. And it does, I mean, it does keep getting worse in some ways. But, but that's, that's not where we fix our mind. It's not where we fix our focus. I mean, because um, God hasn't abandoned us. So, and he touches us. So when someone receives Holy Communion, for example, they are coming into contact with God. When they receive the, the, the oil, the anointing oil of Holy Chrismation, they're coming into contact with God. And so another way that I personally like to explain the sacraments or the mysteries of the church, the Holy Mysteries, is that God is doing something. That's how I often say it. God is doing something and we get to be a part of it. We get to participate in it. And it's a privilege for us because we don't have to do very much. You know, show up on time and try to be somewhat attentive. Um, but the reality is God does the hard work. 
Although for us, you know, sometimes the work, the very little work that we have to do does seem very difficult. It does. And so when I say things like that, it's not to poo-poo you guys and to say, oh, your life is actually easy and, you know, um, as if you don't have struggles. But it's important for us to keep our struggles in perspective at times. And, uh, and to know, I do believe, I want to let you all know that I, that I am hopeful. I think that we're capable of a lot more than we realize. And again, that's not me guilting you into saying you should be better than you are. You can't be any better than you are right now. But where you're at right now is the best starting point. It always is. You know, to drawing near, deepening your understanding of life. Hum humbling yourself as a broken and imperfect person. That is the fertile soil for the planting of the, the goodness of God in your life. What do we uh, fertilize soil with? I like to remind people of this every once in a while. What do we fertilize soil with, everyone? Manure. That's usually, you wouldn't think of manure in and of itself as having any benefit. Uh, but that's a good, another good image for <laughs> our personal struggles. God can even work with that. So there's a little hope there. So in the Holy Mysteries, we take the things of the world that have fallen subject to corruption. We bless them. We sanctify them by calling on the grace of the Holy Spirit. And then they're, they're used as a means of encountering, you know, as God actually reaching us through his creation. It's very beautiful by the grace of the Holy Spirit. So now we're going to talk about what's called Holy Chrismation. The seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I only have five copies of the book. If, if you guys want to pass them around, every few people, it may or may not be helpful to follow along. I always give you this disclaimer because I use the text as kind of a guide, but then while I'm reading it, I go every which way. What chapter? We're chapter 13. The seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. For those of you who are over there, I'm sorry. I wrote chrismation on the board here. I should probably go further back. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Chrismation. Get some bean bags and you can all sit around over here. So we're talking about chrismation. See, I'm already tempted to go on my own little tangent here. But this chapter is called The Seal of the Gift of the Holy Spirit. Have any of you ever been to a baptism in the Orthodox Church? Yes? I mean, some of you have been baptized in the Orthodox Church. Yeah. Did you come to there? Yes. theirs? Was that your first time? Yes. Oh, cool. I was wondering when your first visit was. Do you know, those of you who have been there, do you know why the chapter is called The Seal of the Gift of the Holy Spirit? How, what happens in the service where we use those words? Yeah. So when we're anointing, after they've been baptized, the priest is anointing the newly baptized with 
oil that's called chrism, and I'll talk about the meaning of chrism at some point. Um, And every time he anoints, he's anointing the head, the eyes, the nose, the ears, the mouth, the chest, the hands, the feet, basically all of your faculties, you know, every, all of your means of encountering the world and perceiving are anointed. We're claiming all of those, you know, so that when you employ them, you can use them for God's sake, not for your, for yourself anymore. And the priest says, the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the people say, seal, really loud. It frightens visitors sometimes because they're like, this is weird. But it's, re- but it's really powerful. The seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Seal, and kids like it too because it's a word they can remember. Seal, you know. And uh, so during this anointing, that's the interaction that takes place. So let's talk about the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. The mystery of chrismation is our personal Pentecost in which we receive the Holy Spirit and become living temples of the All-Holy Trinity. At the beginning of his ministry, our Lord Jesus Christ accepted baptism in the Jordan River at the hands of St. John the Forerunner. When he emerged from the water, the Holy Spirit alighted upon him and anointed him to be the Christ or Messiah. Do you know what that word Christ means? Christos? Anointed one. Anointed one. You can already make that link between Christ, Christian, chrismation. So, anointed him to be Christ or Messiah. We hear in Matthew three sixteen through 17. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So also when we emerge from the baptismal waters, cleansed of our sins, we're anointed with holy chrism, and we receive the Spirit of the living God. And chrism is the sacramental oil that's used for the anointing. And I'll talk a little more about that. Chrismation is our personal Pentecost. What, what happened at Pentecost? Yeah, the descent of the Holy Spirit. So by virtue of this mystery, we become living temples of God. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit was conferred upon the newly baptized by the apostles. We hear in Acts 8. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. See, so that they had encountered Christ. They'd even received baptism, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. So at some point between the time of the Acts, the Apostles, and the second century, The method of this mystery was changed from the laying on of hands to the anointing with holy oil. So this is an early change in the church. This change no doubt reflected the way that the apostles perceived the mystery 
We hear in 1 John 2, 20. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Unction also means in anointing. In the New Testament, the conferral of the Holy Spirit was the prerogative of the apostles. And this authority is retained in the church by their successors, the bishops. And in the West, the mystery called confirmation could be performed only by bishops. In the East, the, the presbyters or priests perform the anointing. But the chrism itself, the anointing oil, must be consecrated by the bishop. So in modern practice, the chrism is consecrated by the chief hierarch of the national church. So for us, it would be our metropolitan. Although the effects of, of chrismation are manifold, we shall focus on three of the most important effects. First of all, chrismation bestows a upon us the spirit of adoption, making us children of God. Second, it's our anointing into the royal priesthood. And third, chrism is the pledge of our future inheritance of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son and Word of God the Father, descended from heaven and took upon himself our humanity for one reason, to reconcile man to God and to introduce him into the eternal communion of love that is the life of the Holy Trinity. And through Holy Chrism, we personally receive the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of adoption. We hear from Galatians 4, 3 through 6. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. From all eternity, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and rests in the Son. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, he rests upon us, making us like unto the Son of God. Abba, Incidentally, is an Aramaic term of endearment, often translated as daddy, but I disagree with that. Um, let me give you a little teaching on that. <laughs> I wrote in my notes, no. <laughs> <laughs> so in the Aramaic language at the time of Jesus, there was absolutely no other word than Abba available uh, if Jesus wished to speak of or address God as Father. So naturally, such speaking of and addressing thereby would lose its special character. For it is then indeed only po the only possible form. So people will say that all the time. Oh, I get to call God my daddy and things like that. And it's, the, it's very emotional and like it's sweet. But, but that's, it's just not quite correct. It's fair to say that Abba... And Jesus' time belongs to a familiar or a colloquial register of language, distinct from a more formal or ceremonious language. But in any case, it was not a, a childish expression comparable with daddy. It was a more solemn, responsible adult uh, addressed to a father. So, like we, we hear in the lives of the desert fathers, they're called the Abbas of the desert. We call them, don't call them the desert daddies. It's a term of respect, respect 
but at the same time of endearment, like a loving a, with warmth. You know what I mean? It's not like, you know, I greet you, professor, or something like, daddy, you know. Uh, but it's, it's, it, has, it has warmth and solemnity, which is something we lack in the West. Again, we're kind of an either-or type of people. It's like either formal or casual. How about we put the two together? So that term Abba has been used as a way of re- voicing respect for someone while also voicing that they have a, like a love for you and you for them. So if the New Testament writers had, had conscience of the nuance, daddy, they could have expressed themselves that way. But in fact, they were well aware that the nuance is not that of daddy, but of father. So the semantics of Abba itself, based on various evidences, all agree in supporting the nuance of father more than daddy, just so you know. You hear that like in different, you know, Protestant circles and things. I grew up with that. It was, you know, people would get really fixated on certain little sweet things that they like and kind of go for it for a while. And it would, the word daddy is trending in the, you know, um, Protestant world right now or something like that. And uh, we went through that. But, I mean, he is as loving as any daddy could ever be. But um, but that has kind of a diminutive sense to it. And we always encounter God with a sense of respect and awe and trust. You know? And that's part of where we go wrong. It's like we think we either need to fear our leaders or our leaders need to be our buddies. That's not really how it needs to be all the time, you know, our equals. Love creates a new, a new hierarchy, you could say, for us. So in this way, though, by referring to God as, encountering God as Abba or our Father, we enter into the intimate relationship of love between the Father and the Son, and we become co-heirs with Christ in His heavenly inheritance. So He makes us, allows us to be his children, like Christ, like Christ is the Son of God from all eternity, begotten before the ages, we say, in the theological language of the church. And we hear in Romans eight fourteen through 17, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ. If it so be that we suffer with him, that we, that he also, that he may, excuse me, that he also, what does it say in your translation? What's that we may also glorify him. I've got a typo in my version here. That we may also glorify him together. So, Holy Chrismation is therefore our introduction into the life of the Holy Trinity. We hear in the hymn of uh, the Apolitikion of Theophany, when thou, Lord, is baptized in the Jordan, worship of the Trinity was made manifest. We sing... um, at the feast of the Lord's baptism, and when we do your house blessings. You know, you hear it many, many, many times. So if you don't know that 
him. Just have your house blessed and you'll have it memorized by the end. So it's at our baptism and chrismation that the Holy Trinity is made manifest in our lives. And in addition to bestowing upon us the adoption as children of God, the Holy Spirit also bestows spiritual power and priestly dignity. Before his ascension, the Lord commanded the apostles, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye, in this, just hang out in the city of Jerusalem. Wait until you be endued with power from on high. Luke 24. This power is the Holy Spirit who came upon the apostles at Pentecost and who comes upon us at our chrismation. So in the Old Testament, the priests of God were anointed with oil after being washed in water and roped with their priestly vestments. You see that? If you've been to an Orthodox baptism, you see the exact same thing happen. So in the Old Testament, the priests of God were anointed with oil after being washed and robed with their priestly vestments. What do we see in the baptism service? How does it go? What's the series of events? Many, many, many prayers. Then the baptism. Then you're robed. And then you're chrismated. And then, and then the procession. So, we hear in Exodus 29. And Aaron and his sons, thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shalt wash them with water. And thou shalt take the garments, and put upon Aaron the coat, and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the the curious girdle of the ephod. And thou shalt put the mitre upon him. Excuse me upon his head and put the holy crown upon the mitre. Then shalt thou take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head and anoint him. So after we're washed and robed, we too receive the priestly anointing for the service in God's church. And this is why the apostle Peter calls the members of the church a royal priesthood. Here in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, <laughs> definitely peculiar, Yet, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. There is only one priest in Christ Jesus. In the, excuse me. There's only one priest in the church, Jesus Christ, the great high priest of our salvation. However, Inasmuch as we're united with him in baptism and anointed with him, the spirit of his anointing, we all share in his priesthood. That is, in his ministry of reconciliation between God and man. What was the ministry of the priest in the Old Testament? What does a priest do? Very simple. Not all the right, the rituals and things like that, but essentially, what does the priest do? Okay, but why? What's happening even through the sacrificial system? People are being linked to God. Linking people to God. Bringing people back into relationship with God. Who have fallen away, you know what I mean? Who have separated themselves in some way. A ministry of redemption. Redeeming the relationship of others with God. And this is the prerogative of the royal priesthood. 
The fact that some within the church are set apart specifically to serve at the altar in no way abrogates the responsibility of every member of the church to share in Christ's work of reconciliation and bring the glorious gift of God's grace to the world. So it's not just the priest's job to do all the work. While the people just get to come to him as like a spiritual vending machine and um, receive blessings and sacraments and then go on with their life and then complain about their mistakes and so on. You know what I mean? We have a high calling. When I was with our Metropolitan this week, he's very gentle, calm. I think you'll like him. And he said, we need to help the people in our church to reclaim the royal priesthood. Which means the high, the high calling of the Christian to, be who, to become who God created us to be and to become who we can't be without Him. <laughs> A lot of times, we're even, even as Christians, we're trying to be Christians without Him. On our own strength, you know, in our own way. And that has to change. That's why the Christian life, as you know I like to say, is just a constant crisis. You think you know who you are and then you realize you don't. Good. That's good. That's good for us. The moment we become self-confident or self-assured in some way is the moment we need to realize once again that I know very little. A guy came to me and he was in a little bit of a distress. I don't know what's going on. My life is full of trials and confusions and difficulties. And I said, repeat these words. I know nothing. You know everything. Have mercy on me. You know that prayer. Say to God, I know nothing. You know everything. Have mercy on me. And this is hard. It's hard for us to divest ourselves of everything that we can fuse with our own identity. Everything that we think it's our, our right to, to have and enjoy and to claim to know, for example. But many of us are on our journey into the mystery of the life in Christ in the Orthodox Church because we realize that there's a limitation of that self-confidence that I've had. I really, truly need to divest myself of myself and encounter God as mystery. So, by virtue of our chrismation, each of us is endowed by God with spiritual gifts for service within the church. These gifts are not a principle of individualism and self-sufficiency, but of unity. And just read the letters of St. Paul, you know, and you'll hear how important the unity of the church and the diversity of the church is. You hear in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit with all, to profit everyone. So if you offer what you have to offer, it will not be enough. And another thing I like to say, which is encouraging and discouraging simultaneously, is there is no enough in the church, in the Christian life. 
you will never pray enough, you will never do enough, you'll never fast enough, you'll never love enough, you'll never be devoted enough, you'll never have enough faith, so to speak, because the moment you think that you have enough is the moment you've sold yourself short of God, who is eternal, you know. So there's a constant and ever-dynamic increase in faith, in love, in growth, in humility, you know, as we draw near to Christ. And so it's a little discouraging because we want a little assurance every once in a while. You know what I mean? We do. We don't want to just be told, you'll never be enough. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, you will, in and of yourself, you will never be enough. You can never do enough. But because God loves you, if you trust in Him, if you allow Him to be your Father, then His love will be enough. That, that's where our enoughness comes from. You know what I mean? And then we get to live in this terrible, wonderful tension of activity and passivity. I have to do what I can do, but I can't do what I'm unable to do. And so I shouldn't fret over what I can't do, and I should offer what I can, you know, every effort, every intention to God. And I should love being corrected too, especially when I trust that that correction is ultimately coming from God, you know. Um, this, this line from the Holy Scripture resonates in my mind all the time, and I try to embrace it. Let a righteous man rebuke me. I consider it a kindness. <laughs> okay. Because a lot of times we just get our feelings hurt when we get corrected, even in little ways. But that's one of the things that needs to shift in, in our relationship with one another in the church is one, first of all, that we're, none of us have achieved perfection yet. Um, and that we can stand to be, we all need to be corrected. And it's not always in the way that we would like to be corrected. Otherwise, correction wouldn't be needed. It would just be another form of self-affirmation. So part of our healing is the revealing of us, of our vulnerability and weakness that takes place as we draw near to God and start to learn how to trust other people and uh, realize that that vulnerability isn't something that leads to the utter annihilation of myself, but it actually reveals to the healing of myself. And... That's why a priest in particular needs to be sensitive, has a level of sensitivity to where people are at. Because trust is something that has to be earned. It takes time. Trust is really putting your faith in another person. That even if they're not perfect and they make mistakes, they're really, they're really in it for the right reasons. You know what I mean? And, uh, and that's what happens to us when we fix our eyes on Christ together and then we all become a part, members of the body of Christ, not to, to feel a sense of accomplishment or achievement in and of ourselves, but to help one another. You know, we really need each other.
if God is bringing us into his church together, then we need to realize that we, we actually do need each other. Like St. Paul says, can, can one part of the body say to the other part of the body, I don't need you? No. The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. I may have told you guys this once, but when I was in college, this whole thing about gift, gifting, I just went to a Protestant Bible school. What's your gifting was a big thing. What's your spiritual gift? And, you know, people were always like psyched out and stressed out about what their gifting was. And they didn't know what it was and they had to figure it out. And it was like, oh, there was, they didn't, I, I'm not going to know who I am until I think, I think I have the gift of prophecy. You definitely don't, buddy. Oh, uh, okay. That's just the one I want, maybe. We have the gift of good works or something. You know what I mean? I'm the gift of mercy. But, uh, you know, but, but a, a young lady that I was doing mission outreach work with back in college said, you know, if you were a part of the body of Christ, uh, you'd be the foot. You'd be the foot. And I was like, oh, thank you. And... It's just kind of a foot. You don't associate a foot with, you know, a compliment. But what she meant is something that holds up the body. But still, the foot. I mean, I was a college guy. I mean, anytime you think of a foot, you think of physical education, socks, sneak, sneakers. and But you'd be the foot. I'll take that. I don't think. Yeah, you'd be the foot. So it's important for us to note that the royal... The phrase royal priesthood is used in the scripture only to refer to the church as a whole, not to individuals. The reason for this is clear. The gifts of the Spirit are the means whereby each member of the body of Christ contributes to the life of the whole. This is very important for us. That which leads to strife and dissension is not of God. This is why Christ, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, gives us the, rec- the ministry of reconciliation in the church. And unity in Christ is, is our aim. To be reconciled to one another through Christ, by the grace of the Holy Spirit. We read in John sixteen thirteen, When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. And likewise, St. John writes that the anointing that we receive teaches us all things. In 1 John 2.27, the anointing you receive teaches you all things. And this is where I want to give a, a little um, discursus, tiny one, on what chrism is, what chrism means. Does anyone read here? Chrism. Chrisma. And... Um, And so we hear in this passage, but the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not anything that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is the truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. So this 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 word chrisma, chrism means anointing. So let's do a little fun with words for a moment. The word chrism means anointing oil. The word Christos means anointed one, also translated as Messiah. The word Christian often is 
looked at as meaning like a little Christ, or you could say a member of the royal priesthood of Christ who is the high priest. But how does one become a part of this royal priesthood? Through anointing, through being anointed into that. So properly speaking, and as a, as a matter of course throughout the history of Christianity until we went every which way, Someone has always been initiated into the church through baptism and chrismation. This anointing, in particular, is that from which we get the word Christian, because Christ, the anointed one, initiates us through our anointing by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And the symbol of that and the sacrament of that is the oil that is blessed and prepared and placed upon you. So anyway, it's interesting to look at those things because a lot of times from like from my background, I, we would just look at the kind of say, that's not all necessary. Why do you then? But if that's not necessary, what is necessary is anything at all. You know what I mean? We're not here. I would hope that Christians are not here to be to be minimalists in their faith. You know what I mean? No, we don't want to become materialists or idolaters and our relationship with the world and our love of God's creation and our reclamation of it is actually what heals us from the temptation to become idolaters to see the world as an end in and of itself and to worship the creation rather than the creator so our sacramental worldview puts us in proper relationship with the world it puts the world back in its proper perspective so we don't worship the world as matter but we worship the creator of it you know what are you thinking what's on your mind yeah it's related i hope it's not too tangential but i do think it is related at the same time okay do you think that that idea that the ritual in the orthodox church like Where I was raised, I was like, So you're right. And this is something I was really concerned with growing up too. This idea that I could somehow do something that would affect my salvation. So, and there's nothing that I that you or I can do that will that will accomplish my salvation. That took place when God became man in the person of Christ. You know, revealed himself as the God man was crucified, buried, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. I mean, that's that's where our, that, that is our, he is our salvation. But we, have to, but we have to do something. Like we have to say yes to that. And we have to choose to participate in that. And that's where there's another, there's a, there's a false dichotomy in the Western world that says, that's a fear of a works-based or a merit-based, I would say. People say works-based, but it's like, 
if you're worried about having a works-based salvation, then you can never do anything as a Christian. You would actually need to, if you truly believed, were afraid of having a works-based salvation in some way, then you would actually need to pretend that you're not a Christian in order for God to save you, despite the fact that you pretended that he doesn't exist. Because, you know, does that make sense to you? Otherwise, if you're a Christian, what are you going to do? You're going to try to spend time with God. You're going to read your Bible. I mean, isn't that an activity? You're, you're going to get together with your Christian friends and try to encourage each other. You're going to worship together. Isn't that an activity or a form of work? I mean, so there's a false dichotomy that doesn't need to be there. That came, that, that is a part of the collective trauma of, you know, of the Roman Catholic Church and its abuses of authority um, that led to the Protestant Reformation. And so there's this kind of like spiritual trauma that carries forward from the, the, the abuse of authority and sacramental power, you know, the ability to, to give or withhold sacraments from people. And what happened with the priesthood in the Western world is that something that's called like sacerdotalism, that the, the priest or the sacerdos, the priest became such a high figure that only he could really come into contact with God, particularly using the Latin language. And if you needed anything from God, you had to go to the priest and you probably needed to pay him in order to get that access. And that is an absolute, utter, and total abuse of the priesthood, of the sacraments, you know what I mean, of the, of the privilege and authority of the church. And so people completely discarded everything that had to do with Roman Catholicism in the Western world. And they even, growing up, I've told you guys that I had a distinction in my household that I'm a, I'm a Christian, not a Catholic, you know, because... That's part of that. It was a traumatic thing that took place. And the interesting thing is the Roman Catholic Church has changed in many ways. As a result, you know, recovered from some of that corruption, but there's still, there are still problems there. I mean, any, anywhere there's a, a human being, there's a problem. Um, but, uh, but, I, but I see that because people are worried that they're going to have to do something that will therefore enable them to achieve the state of being saved. And a series of hoops you have to jump through. You know, they're rejecting that idea. So the wholesale rejection of that idea leads you to the other extreme. But if you take it to its logical conclusion, it's like, well, you can't do anything then as a Christian. You know? We all do things. So we need to heal that. This is what the Orthodox Church helps us to recover from. It heals. It, what was looked at as two extremes from one another, it actually brings together. Like faith and works is, we, we, we live in accordance with what we believe. You know, anything that you do, that you value, Anything that you care about and you believe, you act on it. It doesn't matter if you claim to believe in it. It matters how you actually live. You know what I mean? How we live our lives. This is the calling of the priesthood and this is the kind of purification that we're trying to go through together. 
not to beat each other or ourselves up as a result of realizing our own hypocrisy and how terrible we are, but um, to be, again, to be, to be cleansed, to be purified, to be healed. We use that language of healing, that therapeutic language a lot in the church. We don't use legal or juridical language in the church, which is another aspect of what you're getting at. Whereas, like, you, you break a rule, then you need to endure a certain punishment as a propitiation for it. You know what I mean? Like you need to, you need to compensate for it somehow. And people kind of make jokes a little bit about like if they go to the Catholic priest and he says, oh, go do so many Hail Marys and there's so many Lord's Prayers and you know what I mean? It's like, oh, okay, that's easy. <laughs> you know, can I have a lollipop too when I'm done? But you know, it just, it, 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 it's, it has felt shallow and people have trivialized what could be i mean in in a person's experience it could be helpful to them in some way but um, but it's turned it into the kind of this legal or juridical approach to god where it's i've broken the law and i need to do my time and then i can go to heaven and if i do my time then whew, th thankfully my slate will be clear my record will be clean you know and i get to go to heaven that's not the orthodox approach. So, anyway, thank you for prompting that little reflection. So, St. John writes that the anointing we receive teaches us all things. So this does not mean, however, that we as individuals have the capacity to interpret the scriptures on our own. On the contrary, you're in First Peter 1, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. The truth is given to the church as a body, and it's within that communal fellowship of divine love that we as unique persons come to experience and know the truth. And then actually the interesting thing is once you become oriented to the teaching of the church and its approach to the scripture and interpretation, there's you'll find a lot of freedom actually to read and interpret and understand the church, but it's never done in an individualistic or merely private way. Because when you become a member of the church in this way, you become like what I heard one Orthodox professor term, an ecclesial being. You become someone who is united to the, the church, the body of Christ, and you, can, you can't perceive of yourself as apart from that. It's like when a husband marries his wife and his wife says, I bet you wish you would have married someone else. And he says, I could never even conceive of that because I, my, I don't have a life apart from you now. We're one. We're one with one another. So for me, for me to even imagine something like that would be to deny reality. I mean... You might say it in a sweeter way, less theological. It doesn't really woo my wife when I say things like that, does it? Uh, she'll say, I just want you to tell me uh, that you love me and that I look pretty today. So, um, <laughs> can you imagine having a guy that looks like a desert ascetic? You look so beautiful today, honey. Let's go do some prostrations together. <laughs> So the truth is given to the church as a body. 
And so that's important perspective for, for our approach to biblical study, even hermeneutics. And that's why I always encourage people who are new to orthodoxy to get a hold of an orthodox study Bible. It's not like perfect in every way. It's not your one-stop shop for biblical studies or anything like that. But it's helpful. And if you need one, you don't have one. We don't have our bookstore set up right now. But if, if you need one, I can help you get one. I have some extra copies. Especially if you have a, if you have a hard time buying something like that. I think they're like... I don't know, $40 or something nowadays. But the Orthodox Study Bible is, is helpful because it gives some basic footnotes and interpretations and it initiates you into the mindset with which we approach the reading of the Scriptures. So it's therefore the Holy Spirit who equips each of us for our unique role in the body of the Lord. As the Apostle Paul teaches, we cannot be all be hand or all eye. Each of us has our part. Some of us have to be the foot. Each is necessary and unique. So this is important. Each is necessary and unique. I need you and you need me. It's not the same as codependency also. This relationship also in the church with one another heals codependency. The Holy Spirit, therefore, unifies us through the multiplicity of gifts, even as the many tongues of fire that descended upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost unified them and anointed them to be the church. In Acts 2, every baptized and chrismated Orthodox Christian, therefore, is a child of God and a priestly minister of his love to the world. We know, however, that this present world is not our true home. In John 16, we hear, In the world you should have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. As Christians, we await the return of the one who has overcome the world and the establishment of his eternal kingdom. Chrismation is our guarantee or earnest, as St. Paul calls it, toward that end. In his second epistle to the Corinthians, St. Paul described the Holy Spirit as a down payment on our future inheritance of immortality. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, meaning those of us who are on earth, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up by life. Now he who hath wrought, wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of this spirit. Meaning he claims us for life, not for death, and a life that transcends the temporary one that we're living for now by the grace of the Holy Spirit. We await the coming of the kingdom of God. And yet our Lord said, the kingdom of God is within you. We love this line in the Orthodox Church as well. The kingdom of God is in, within you. The Holy Spirit makes present the kingdom of God as he dwells within those who have been anointed, who have become Christians. Through the Spirit we partake here and now of the kingdom that is to come. 
and with such great grace, however, comes great responsibility. Unto whomsoever much is given, of him much will be required. Luke 12, 48. Having been anointed with the Spirit of God, we have become temples of his holiness. It behooves us, therefore, to live in accordance with this great honor. St. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 3, says, Know ye not that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, whose temple you are. And then let's... uh, Can you ask me a question? You just did. We can read these quotes from the fathers in just a second here. Yes. Yeah, I went through that too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it in my upbringing was quite confusing and difficult to understand how one acquired the Holy Spirit. Then when it became Orthodox, I realized that yes, I had baptism and chrismation, but also, um, you know, when you read like Saint Seraphim Sarah, you realize well, he was in the church and he was still trying to acquire the Holy Spirit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That is true. It's like any relationship that you have. You know, you can grow in that relationship. would never, I mean, we wouldn't use the language of acquisition of the Holy Spirit really outside of the church. But, but there is no place in the world where God is not. So anyone in any place at any time could be under the influence of God in some way. I mean, one of the presuppositions that I hold that is essential, I think is essential is that God is at work in everyone's life in some way. There's no one in whose life God is not doing something. We may be accepting or rejecting it more or less. So, 
when we're talking about the encounter with the Holy Spirit, we're talking about something that is very personal. And the concern with the Western approach to the acquisition of the Holy Spirit is that it's very emotional and very individualistic usually. And uh, because because the, it's lacking in its there's it's lacking an ecclesiological framework like we have in the Orthodox Church, that I heard someone say it's like a it's like a um, a, a fire without a fireplace. You know, and the church becomes the fireplace within, within which that fire can appropriately burn. And so I'm very, very careful. There, there is a book written by Father Alexis Trader, who is now Bishop Alexis. They, he goes by the name Alexi to um, Alex, Alexis, you short for Alexis, um, of Alaska. He's a convert to Orthodoxy, became a, a monastic at uh, St. Tikhon's, took a trip to Mount Athos and stayed there, became a priest monk, and got his PhD in uh, the intersection between modern psychotherapy and Orthodox, the Orthodox therapeutic method. And he wrote a book specifically on the place of the, our understanding of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, if you're interested in that. We have it in our in our uh, lending library, actually, which is still intact. <laughs> our little parish bookstore has been packed away, but that book is in the bookstore, so if you all want to have a like arm wrestling match to go get it after the service, you can. What's that? Um, I told you the name of the author, but I, I, don't, I didn't tell you the name of the book. Um, let's see. Yeah. 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 So, just a sec. The book is called In Peace, Let Us Pray to the Lord. An Orthodox Interpretation of the Gifts of the Spirit. So, I'll just put the name and the author I get his name right in here. It's by Alexis Trier. Thank you very much. Alexis Trader. I think it might be helpful as an e-book these days. Yeah, Kindle. Usually Kindle books cost $9.99, but this one is $9.97, so it's a screaming deal. And it's available instantly, it says. So. So we already, we already have a problem with the question. Increase. Increase. We always want more. And I'm not condemning you or anything like that, but I'm just saying this is, 
It's like the first question, someone came to talk to a monk in the desert. I've shared this story, at least in a homily or teaching before. A rich man went on a long pilgrimage into the middle of the desert to talk to a renowned Abba of the desert, a monk. And he knocked on his door. The monk opened his door and he said, how can I help you? And the man said, I want to talk to you about the vision of the uncreated light of God. And the monk slammed the door on him. And then the man started walking away and he said, you know what, I've gone all this way. I've traveled, I've spent my money and my time. No way I'm going to accept this. I'm going back and I'm going to tell him I demand to talk to him. So we went back and he knocked on the door and the elder opened the door, kind of like, oh, you again. And he pled his case. And he said, well, the problem is you came to talk about the uncreated light of God. I will not talk to you about that. But if you want to talk about overcoming the passions, then I can reveal to you every manner of good thing. This is where we begin in the church. How do I become a receptacle to the grace of God, to the energy of the Holy Spirit? Not even a receptacle, a conduit. You know, and you see it in the lives of the saints because they were we we have like a lot of people from the Pentecostal tradition who have that fire but no stove for it. You know, they find their way into Orthodoxy because Orthodoxy is a very charismatic tradition. Actually, if you read the lives of the saints, especially, I mean, they were. Healings were taking place, prophecies all the time, miracles. It's incredible. But it it was never about them. It was never about drawing attention to themselves. And one of the existential conflicts of the sanctified person is that he or she doesn't want to draw attention to his or herself. St. Paisios dealt with this big time. He went into the wilderness to pray and to divest himself of himself. And some people found him and he prayed for them. And, you know, healings were taking place and he was became sought after. And he was like, I just want to pray to God. I don't want to have all this attention from people. And at one point in time, he was in a a little like a little cell, you know, um, a little hut of his own that was somewhat accessible. And he he was getting a lot of attention and he said, I have to stay here. I don't want to stay here, but I have to stay here because this is what God wants me to do. I would rather go out into the wilderness and have no one knocking on my door and to be able to intercede for the world without interruption. So, One of the hallmarks of Christian discernment is coming to the realization that there's something that I do not want to do. I know I need to do it. Therefore, I should do it. And I can. It's it's not usually something that's very self-gratifying. You know what I mean? Like, I get to be a runway model? Okay, fine. You know what I mean? (laughs) Although that's probably, if you get into it, it's probably not that great, you know? A celebrity, you know, anything that we idealize in our culture is really not ideal. I mean, think about, I mean, 
drugs, suicide rates, things like that are just through the roof in, in, in anything that we might idealize. But, um, and even in charismatic Christian leaders, because a lot of them become performance artists, as well-intentioned as they were when they started. But what happens when the, when the tongues don't come? What happens when I don't have a word of life? To, you got I have to have something to say. And it's not fake it till you make it. It's fake it until you crash. And that doesn't happen in the Orthodox tradition. Or if you fake it into, in, until you crash, the church is still there. You know what I mean? It's not because it's not a, based on a personality. You know what I mean? And so, anyway, there are a lot of risks with this idea of wanting to have gifts of the Holy Spirit. People who are prophetic and healers and merciful and things like that. It's because, like St. John the Baptist said, they've learned to decrease so that he may increase. And a lot of them live lives of intense suffering. They wake up in the morning realizing how impossible it is for me to get through the day unless God gives me the breath of life and the purpose. And then you can become a charismatic figure. But it'll, be, it'll feel like you're uh, in a crucible. Now we can all have discernment and I think we can all be prompted by the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, I think God, God is at work in our life in little ways. But it, we, it always needs to be through the, the lens of, of uh, humility, you know what I mean? And so we have to be careful with experiences. Because experiences are, they can be deceptive and fleeting. Yeah, so... Someone did that to me too, yeah. So a lot of people go from that very like heightened experience, even if they're trying to convince themselves, well, maybe it was God or was it me? You know what I mean? But at least they experience it. But what I experienced in that culture was a lot of highs and lows. Either I was feeling great or I was crashing. I mean, it was either I was transcending or I was just in the pits of hell. And there were a lot of people, there was this interesting cycle of um, rededicating them li- their lives to Christ, having, experiencing charismatic giftings, and then falling into sin again. It was interesting. And there was a lot of corruption, too, in the leadership that I was, oh, 
It was just, it was, you know, because it's too much, a lot of that is too much for, for uh, most people to handle. This is one of the reasons why the gifts of the Spirit are, are expressed and best kept in, in the church. They're protected there. It protects us from the potential for delusion. And it gives us the security to experience the gifts that God does give us in the proper way. And so you're right. You know, you were right to be a little skeptical. I, I experienced that too. A guy laid hands on me when I was a teenager. He said, you're like a power pole for the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a good compliment. I was like, I am? And then he starts doing his speaking in glossolalia. And, uh, and Father Zacharias actually talks about he addresses glossolalia, the speaking of tongues, in one of his books. And um, Elder Cleopa of Romania talks about it in his Truth of Our Faith book, which is really good. And so, but anyway, this guy laid hands on me. He said, okay, just use the words I'm using. So he was trying to get me to imitate him so that I could acquire my own prayer language. And I just wasn't there. No, I wasn't there. I couldn't do it. But thank, thank God he said, that's okay. Because I've been around a lot of people who said, oh, you must have a hidden sin then. You know, there must be something wrong with you because I definitely have it. You don't. Like you said, that in-out thing. And that has destroyed families. It's destroyed people's lives. And it's caused a lot of people to live with a kind of a holy facade. You know what I mean, too. A lot of hidden, unaddressed sins because it's such an outward expression of the faith. The, ver- the ver- validation of your faith is through this outward expression, which is uh, like very emotional and dramatic at times. And if you don't have that, then something must be wrong. When I was Oh, yeah, right, yeah, exactly. It's a feeling that they get. That's true. That is true. I like the fact that Saint Seraphim is over your left shoulder too. Did you know that? Yeah. No, that's important. That is. That's right. Uh, I plan on sending you guys. I'll send a little follow-up email to everyone to our uh, distribution list. If you're not on it, come up to me and give me your email address, and I can make sure that you're on. Usually, I just give a reminder on Saturday that we have class on Sunday. But sometimes I'll do a little follow-up email with an article or something. And there is um, an article in which St. Seraphim of Sarov talks about the acquisition of the Holy Spirit that I think everyone should read. It's an essential text. So, Jeff, you had your hand up over oh, there. Yeah, thank you. Can we do it in you 30 seconds to a minute? Yeah, just give it really quick. Okay. You mentioned uh, the gift of 
book about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But he talked about people who who went through the, uh, the charismatic thing about speaking in tongues. He addresses all of that, yeah. Did, did he mention either if it was just from our mind, we're making it up, or if it's possible demonic? But yeah, both. Both? Yeah. Both. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay, I need that exorcism then because I did that and I could still do it probably. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. Well, we'll address that with you at the right time. But uh, okay, well, it's two o'clock, so we need to pause there for today. We're going to talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit next time. We didn't get to our special study. That's okay. That's usually how it's been going these days. Um, We'll talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit and then continue on from there. I think next week that might work well because next week is our third Sunday of the month, so we'll be doing our homeless outreach. So we'll make sandwiches and lunches downstairs for our homeless outreach for about 30, 45 minutes. And then we'll come up here for a shorter session. So I think we can do our special study on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And um, that might take up that time. Or maybe do a little, a little teaching on another popular topic or something like that. So please stand up with me. And we'll conclude with a prayer. A prayer for the acceptance of God's will. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. O Lord, I know not what to ask of thee. Thou alone knowest what my true needs are. Thou lovest me more than I myself know how to love. Help me to see my real needs which are concealed from me. I dare not ask for either a cross or a consolation. I can only wait on thee. My heart is open to thee. Visit and help me for thy mercy's sake. Strike me and heal me. Cast me down and raise me up. I worship in silence thy holy will in thine inscrutable ways. I offer myself as a sacrifice to thee. I put all my trust in thee. I have no other desire than to fulfill thy will. Teach me how to pray. Pray thou thyself within me. Amen. To the prayers of our holy fathers, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. God bless you all. Go in peace. Good to be with you today. Can't wait to see you next week. Or maybe this week for Vespers or something. Mm.